Yes, he's in the fortress, Carlton Wilborn. He's one of Madonna's favourites. Today, he talks about the highs and lows working alongside some of pop music's most famous names. Now you're in the fortress too. You're listening to Time to Talk. Coming to you from the mountain fortress of pop culture. You're listening to Time to Talk. You don't think I'm overexposed, do you? And he's here now in the fortress, Carlton Wilborn. He's a multi-talented author, actor, host, occasional singer, and of course a dancer who has featured in some legendary music videos, including Janet's Love Will Never Do and Madonna's Vogue. He is a true gentleman with a fascinating life story. Carlton, welcome to Time to Talk. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Now listen, first things first, Carlton. Would yes, you like sir. to stroke would you like to stroke our baby dragon eagle? Stroke a baby dragon eagle? How could I fucking not say yes to that? Sure. Exactly. There he is right there. Go on, give him a stroke. Right hi, hi, baby dragon eagle. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what, Carlton? He he recently swallowed a monopoly piece, but he's recovering. <laughs> Isn't he handsome, though? Isn't he handsome? He's stunning. Yeah. <laughs> I think he looks a little like Angela Merkel. Wow. Yeah. Wow. He's adorable. He's adorable. Okay. <laughs> i tell you what, Carlton. Your life has taken you on some twists and some turns. You've been on top, but you've also experienced rock bottom. And in among it all, you have a connection to Australia. You've lived here for nine months. I did. I did. I um, I was in the Hubbard Street Dance Company at the time, and um, I just, for whatever reason, whenever I saw the word Australia, I got moved, right? If it was in a book, if I saw a billboard, whatever. So then all of a sudden, I remember there was a music video out with, um, I think it was Duran Duran called Wild Boys. Come to find out that entire cast of movers was the Sydney Dance Company. And I was like, what? So I got this bug up my ass to go uh, for the first time ever, take myself to Australia to find the Sydney Dance Company to try to get to work with them. And so that's what took me to Australia. And so when you first started to hit me up a few weeks back, right, and we were trying to see if we could make this happen, I did some research and I, I gave a listen to some of your podcasts and saw that you did one with Paul Mercurio from Strictly Ballroom. And so the connection, as I told you, I was going to say, like what once we were on air, is that when I got to the company, he had left. And basically, I was there waiting for a contract to open. And Paul's contract was open. So I never got to meet him, but I was sort of in his trail yeah. Carlton, you've got a connection to Paul Mercurio. How cool is that? I know, right? I love it. That's amazing. What totally. did you think of our country? What did you did it live up to everything you thought of? <laughs> Here's what really happened. I um, again, I sought out the company. I had communication with them, so they were expecting me to be there at some point. 
and I had booked myself in a youth hostel. On the day that I arrived, dude, it was torrential rainstorm. And when I got to the hostel, it was in some hood, busted up, ghetto looking neighborhood. And I King's Cross, probably. No, 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 no. It wasn't even that name. I remember calling my mom from a payphone, standing outside in the rain, sobbing. I think I fucked up. I think it's really horrible. And she was like, Carlton, just breathe. Just wait until the rain passed. <laughs> and then the next day it cleared. I was able to get into the city. And then Magic Land happened. So my experience in Australia was amazing, dude. Um, it was, I would say, far more than I had anticipated. Um, and also, I do have to just sort of launch into this as an as a as a as an African American man. I call myself a chocolate man, like I'm from the chocolate tribe, right? <laughs> so okay. coming from the chocolate tribe. As an American being in Australia, I have no idea what it's like there now because it's been a chunk of years. But at that point, it was honestly, Tim, it was the first time that I had ever traveled anywhere where me being black was something that was edified and people were excited to see me. I am very happy to report that we're not so white bread anymore. We're a little bit more diverse than we were back then, which okay. is fantastic. Absolutely. But it seemed like it served a purpose for you here, though. Did you did you get it on plenty of times while you were here, Carl? Um, you know what? I I had a good time. Come on now. <laughs> I'll just wow. say that. That's all I'm going to say right now. Fair I will enough. call out no names or neighborhoods <laughs> or alleys. <laughs> I was wondering why that street next to King's Cross was called Carlton Alley. Now I know. Or why it's boarded up. (laughs) I love it. I love it, Carlton. Let's get something slightly awkward out of the way right up front, okay? Okay, what's up? There was an infamous moment during the Truth or Dare documentary when you exposed yourself to Madonna, and she very loudly made a rather bizarre observation. Do you remember what that was? Um, I remember she made an observation. I don't know that, that it was bizarre. Go ahead. Well, she, she said, it, <laughs> I, I, forgive my language, listeners. She said, it's fucking blue. Oh, that, that. Okay, got it. That is bizarre, right? Well, I guess if you don't understand the reference, then yes. So here in America, um, if you're really, if you're black chocolate brown skin and you're really, really dark, they say that you're blue black. So I always assumed that she was using its blue because I was very dark and my dick was very dark. Ah, see, there you go. It's just lost in translation. I always exactly. thought you were, you were very cold, but that didn't usually change the color. It usually changed no, the size. Exactly. Yeah, no, it was blue, meaning it was very dark. I can guarantee you, Carlton, <laughs> thousands of people listening, you've just clarified something that they've been scratching their head about. To, unless the comments will dictate that I'm the only moron on the planet, which is probably true as well. <laughs> um, and I can't even remember the last interview I've done where that moment was ever brought up. So well, kudos to you, sir. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Carlton, you were born and raised in Chicago, as you've said. How does it define you? when you're the youngest child of a big family? Um, that's a good question. Um, it's actually a really great question because so I've, I live in LA, as I said earlier, I've been out here 
this coming June will be 34 years. When, when, when you're bred from Chicago, it brings, whether you're black, white, it doesn't matter. It, it, it builds you to be a little bit um, polished and elegant and a little bit hood. Like both of those elements live inside you. So to answer your question, me coming from the south side of Chicago, the baby of five kids, being blasted out into the world, I had this sense of that I could, I could naturally fit into a multitude of worlds. If I needed to do a level up and deal with those kinds of folks, I knew how to do that. If I needed to keep it a little bit more grounded and base level and hood and ratchet, I knew how to manage and deal with those folks as well. So that's what it gave me. And, and, and it served me well as I traveled. Yeah. You say your father was emotionally unavailable. My dad was, his name is Augustus. Um, you know, he was, I mean, he's still alive. So he is, um, you know, in comparison to my mom. So my mom grew up in Chicago. My dad grew up in Augusta, Georgia. Mom being from Chicago, she was, um, she had a lot of different jobs, but her sort of side hustle or her um, sort of passion was to work as a model. And so she did that on a regional level. She knew how to turn on that extra thing. And she was also incredibly charming. And I know that that's where I got my sort of people skills from. Dad, on the other hand, was a Southern boy, you know, who didn't get to travel much or didn't have access to a lot of other people. So he was a very simple kind of guy. He liked to fish. He did his his blue collar job. You know, he drove a big truck distributing frozen foods around the local area. By being with my mom and all that came with her, he was in a world that was bigger than him, you know. And I think he was really intimidated by all that came with her. Mom was a fag hag back in the day. There was a club in Chicago called the Bistro. Big, huge gay club, right? And my mom partied hard up in there. So all that for my dad was just a lot. You know, he drank a lot alcohol and that just colored him to be kind of curious you know, to grow up with. And um, I don't really remember very many productive conversations from my dad at the time, um, more than I remember his rants, you know, to mom and sometimes to us. And of course, that meant your mom meant everything to you. She featured in The Truth or Dare for a brief I know, right? She is. And yeah, you know, my mom was definitely that first female for me that I had on a pedestal, you know? Yeah. And um, one, I mean, it was very easy because she was both my parents. Dad is incredibly handsome. I'm like, I get now what brought them together for a long time. I didn't understand it because they were at odds for most of my growing life. But now in retrospect, I get what brought them together. Mom was, I have a pain right now that I can see in my place that I had commissioned in honor of my mom after she passed. And it has some statements on it, like, you know, an angel flew in my window. I was watching my mom. I was watching an angel. She touched people when they passed her. My mom's energy was always on the light side. 
you know, I, I, I also realized now that I, I was given a role or I was placed in a role with my mom that was not the most appropriate for me to have. You know, I was her confidant at eight years old to her private bank account that my dad didn't know about. And I would go and filter money in and out for her. That's how I learned how to navigate numbers and speak to powerful people and still feel confident. And, you know, and then she had some extramarital things going on and I would travel with her when she was hanging out with the, you know, at least one of those guys. So Johnny May was a full chock full thing. I mean, look, it's funny. I've, I've often said that my mom truly was my version of Whitney Houston. She had the pull, she had the grace, she had the elegance, but let's not get it twisted. Johnny May would also whoop ass in five minutes if you spoke or looked in the wrong direction. So, yeah, it, it, it is fascinating to think that, you know, in that description of your mother, how you've come to work with some of these amazing, powerful, charismatic women, and it sounds like, that you know, your template was set early on. Carlton, as a boy, mm-hmm. you experienced years of sexual abuse. I did, yeah. Were you groomed? Um, I would say I was absolutely groomed. You know, mm-hmm. for me, it... Um, was a situation that started when I was eight years old. It happened from eight to 13. And my perpetrator was our karate instructor. He was the son of my Aunt Rose's boyfriend. So her boyfriend's son was my karate instructor and the guy that did all the things that he did. And, you know, I mean, I remember, I mean, it's 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 wild because I got my first stack of porno magazines from him. His name is Gary. And they were all straight pornos. And I know that that was a way that he could smokescreen what he was really up to, right? I had my very first orgasm ever to one of those magazines. And I just remember... Um, you know, they were very graphic magazines and the images and stuff like that. But it was his way to, you know, I imagine, I mean, we never talked about it. He never said anything. I just know that he gave me, and I, I say a stack, meaning like it literally was like eight or nine of them. I'm at eight years old. Why the fuck is he giving me those? It makes no sense. But I imagine to him it was in case everything, in case anything ever came back that he was touching me or dealing with me inappropriately, he could fall back to say, no, 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 I was trying to get him to see this other world. And that's not what he was doing. We never talked about women. We never, none of that. So um, I was definitely groomed. Um, and primed as well. That's that's called priming. You sexualize a child who wouldn't otherwise have any idea what that world was about. Sure, 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 sure. So oh. there you go, yeah. It's fairly common for sexual abuse victims to suppress the experience that they had for many years. Was that true for you? That's a great question. Um, I I don't, I can't say no. I mean, if I'm understanding what suppressed would look like, no, I didn't. I mean, I've always been conscious about it. I've looked at it. I've been aware as to some of the, you know, I've been a bisexual man my entire life, you know. But when did you first disclose to somebody, to another human being, that this had happened to you? Oh, wow. Um, 
I did not throughout my teenage years. Um, I just have to sort of do a process of elimination on that question. Uh, growing into my young adult, I think, I mean, honestly, I think the first time I really spoke about it is when I had a girlfriend here in L.A. This was, mm, okay, so around 2006, um, I was dating a female here, and inside of our dating time, she exposed that she had been dealt with a kind of thing similar, and I remember sharing with her my thing, and so it was through her encouragement that got me ultimately to face my perpetrator, and we did a whole interrogation with the sheriff's department in Florida, and all of that rolled out around that time. So um, she was the first person, and from that time with the private investigator deal that I got involved in caused me to then expose it to my family, which I had never told any of them about, come to find out that same year when I brought all that up, for the first time ever, my brother Tony shared with me that he was being dealt with at the same time, and I had no fucking idea. Oh, wow. So that was very interesting and brought us into some bonding that we had never had previous. So, But when you say suppressed it, what does that mean? Because I don't feel like I suppressed it. So what do you mean when you say that? Yeah, it's a good question. Suppressed to most people, I suppose, would mean that you weren't acknowledging it to yourself. But suppression by you know, definition in sexual abuse terms is how long you keep it a secret from others. And if your first time um, sharing it to another adult came in 2006, hmm. I think you said, that's a long time to sit on a secret like that. That's a long time. That's listen, dude. I mean, you're actually bringing something to me that I had really ever thought about before, Tim. You know, I think of, as I said, I think of suppressed meaning I didn't face it myself. But if you put it into suppressing, it means not share it with someone else. Then that's true, and I never thought about that ever until now. That's interesting. Sometimes when a child, especially of that age, 8, eight to 13, experiences sexual abuse, it can absolutely have um, wild impacts on teenage behavior. Did it for you? Oh, for sure, man. Um, I know for me, you know, and I'm, I'm glad that I got to um, give a listen to your other podcast with Paul because I got to see how raw you're able to go, right? And that's good for me because I don't tend to have much filter on what I want to say. And so I'm, I'm thankful that you get to welcome that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I definitely was able to see what sexually I became interested in or was interested in. Are we talking promiscuity, risk-taking behaviors? Um, sure. And also just certain acts that I did, you know, and and the the being inside of sexual behavior and not knowing how to honor myself and not knowing how to honor someone else sex without intimacy right no absolutely intimacy. sex without intimacy sex without um yeah sex without intimacy did that ripple out into adult relationships sure dude yeah i mean i i i you know, if I'm being really honest, there's a part of me that feels like I'm still undoing that. You know, um, I have had, you know, at various times right now I'm single, but I, the longest 
thing that I've done was with a guy for five and a half years. I've been with women for shorter periods of time, but I don't feel like I ever have been able to be in a relationship rested in my soul. I ended up in um, sex addiction therapy or actually SAA, which is Sex Addicts Anonymous, right? Because I was watching myself do some things. And I remember, and this was only in 2010, 11, I um, was dating a dude at the time. I bounced out and was promiscuous multiple times inside of that. And I remember when I started going to SAA, I really prayed quietly that it would heal me from the trauma of being abused as a child because I could put the pieces together. Guess what, Carlton? Just this short conversation tells me you're starting to figure out what pieces are on the table, and that's the first step towards piecing it all together. Oh, absolutely. Sometimes amateurs know best, and the lack of professionalism is all you'll hear on the Time to Talk show. Join Tim and his panel of guests as they wade their way through a range of news, music, and pop culture treats. Time to Talk, the show hosted by amateurs for unprofessional listeners. Shall we lighten the tone a bit? Shall we lighten the tone, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you're clearly a person who hasn't let those experiences hold you back. I mean, you are so accomplished when you actually read about what you've done. Wow, we. Tell us about how you came to audition for Blonde Ambition. Mm. Yeah, well, that was, you know, pretty simple, actually. It was, you know, I was one of... Uh, a thousand plus guys that got the call from my agent. You know, I had an agent out here at the time, Julie McDonald. Uh, She's still a dear friend of mine. And um, it was just a call, you know, there's this big audition happening for him. And um, I went to that audition. I mean, you know, and I've, I've, I've got to share this. I was grateful that I got to go to that audition mainly because I didn't much care about it. Meaning, I had already auditioned for the Whitney Houston tour and had been accepted. Right. But Whitney was on pause for when she wanted to leave. And so in that window, when we were literally just waiting to find out what the tour schedule was going to be, M had her audition. And I was like, Oh, cool. There's this Madonna chick in the world. She's a big deal. Let me go see what she's about just for the entertainment of, being up in her space. I did not need the job. I didn't even know that I could overlap it, right? Did you ever learn what, what she saw in you specifically? I think what she saw in me was experience, you know, because I had already been in the Hubbard Street Dance Company as their main guy, and I'd already traveled the world, and I'd already done interviews. And so I think for sure in comparison to all the other guys that ended up on the tour, but I think even inside of the room when she was, you know, observing who to pick and who to cut and all that. I think that there was a given certain sense of self that I had because I had already worked in substantial ways. There was a kind of fearlessness thing. And I was also not intimidated by her. Again, I had played with power and worked opposite power previous her. So I think all of that for her is a comfort zone. During the Blonde Ambition Tour, was she as demanding as everyone says? Mm. 
Good question. She was as demanding as everyone says, but not in the ways that people have perceived her. Yeah, I mean, she she cares about perfection, as she should, as anybody should should do with their art. Um, but she was not, you know, that B word that she got labeled, and she was not ugly to people and all of that extra crazy that they put on her because she's powerful and she takes ownership to who she is and what she puts out. Um, but yes, she absolutely cared down to the minutia about everything. And I respect her for that. She seemed to trust you, Carlton. When I watched <laughs> the documentary, um, just small interactions, micro expressions. Is it fair to say she seemed to trust you? 1000%. She and I have a great, great kinship in the work world. Absolutely. Absolutely. She had a lot of trust for me. I had a lot of trust for her as well. Yeah. That was a given out the gate until my last tour. Yeah. Every night of that tour on Blonde Ambition, you got to share a very intimate moment with Madonna on stage, just the two of you. Tell us about Oh Father. Mm. Oh Father. Yeah, that was quite a gem of an opportunity thanks really to vincent patterson our choreographer you know he really fought to have that piece sculpted to the degree that it was um one of the gifts of, of that piece for me was you know stuff that we meaning she and i got to share and speak about all the time in the rehearsals that's where really the actor side of both of us got to come out inside of a dance event and so she knew that I had already acted on things before I got there, TV gigs. I starred in my own movie even before I got out to L.A. So she and I had a lot of conversations around acting and being actors. And so when we got into that piece, and Vincent, as a director choreographer, is known for bringing that out in dancers and caring about that level of integrity. So that was, for me, like I was the most like at home. Like that's the richest kind of performing as a dancer that I care about is when I get to merge the two. Despite the speculation, that performance of O Father, it wasn't about a sexual relationship between a woman and a priest, was it? This was more intimate than that. It was more beautiful than that, wasn't it? What was oh, it about? Ab sure, absolutely. Um, no, it was not about a sexual thing at all. It was about... Um, really just a human force, my figure that one can get enticed by being an enticement that puts another figure, her role in their power and stabilizes them. We get drawn to something, but not for the thing that it appears to be, but for something bigger than that. That's what my role and that's what that piece was there to show. Dancing with someone is incredibly physically intimate. I mean, you're holding Madonna, you're embracing her, you're touching her. On the girly show, you lift her gracefully into the air, but you're cradling her buttocks. I mean, can you describe that physical dancing relationship that you had with Madonna? Oh, man. I mean, firstly, you know, partnering for me, I, I'd say, has always been my strongest suit. You know, aside from being a storyteller with movement, because that's always what I've known my main gift to, to dance is. I was never the 
best technician. You know, there was always somebody that could jump higher, turn longer, balance longer, all that kind of stuff than me. I mean, I was okay, but my skill was bringing story and partnering. I have always loved partnering. Being able to, as you spoke so rightly about, just the nuance of collapsing soul to soul, you know, collapsing your trust fully into somebody, you know, as much as one would have to have trust of me holding them or pulling them a certain kind of way, I have to trust and I needed to have a trust in them that they could balance in a certain way and that they could maneuver and hold themselves in a way that could make it safe for me to look like the pillar that I needed to be. So just to have that surrendering to each other is one of the most beautiful things about dancing that I probably miss the most, honestly. Partnering with her is lovely. Again, we have a really great working dynamic that's always been very yummy, if you will. Yeah. Yummy. I love that. Madonna, she actually said herself, she isn't the best singer. She isn't the best dancer. I've got to say the fans totally disagree with that characterization. How do you describe Madonna's dancing ability? Does she underestimate herself? Look, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I've, I've had moments of being absolutely surprised by how awesome of a mover with dynamics and stuff that she is. I mean, I remember when we did the Blonde Ambition tour and, you know, so we would normally with the dancers, we would rehearse on our own for a number of weeks and then they would bring her in and plop her into her place. And so I did not know. I thought that when they brought her in, that they would bring her in and then build on her around what we already did. I didn't know that they had already worked with her for weeks and she would come in. And so we would literally, she would come in and it'd be like, okay, so let's just do one quick block and just make sure all the moments in the transitions and the turn right, turn left, go to the ground, come back up. Okay, let's run it. And she would be fucking full steam in it. And I was like, this chick is moving. She's moving and handling this. I was very, very impressed. You know, again, because I think a lot of us drank the juice of the media, meaning their perspective about her and she ain't this and she's not really that and she's not really this. No, she she was the real deal. She was the real deal. Of course, the Blonde Ambition Tour was followed up by that incredible documentary. Uh, tell us what it was like seeing yourself in that. Truth or Dare? Yeah, you were cast as one of the central real-life characters, and then you get to watch it. I mean, what was that like? Um, you know, I mean, it was, it was fun. I mean, it was, it, was an interesting, it was an interesting process, but also not that overwhelming of a process for me. Again... Tim, you know, I had already worked and I'd already been accustomed to being filmed and documented, not to that scale, but I wasn't new to camera. It was exciting. I think I was, (laughs) I think I was more excited that my mom ended up in it than, you know, the other stuff for me. I mean, I, you know, it was cool. I mean, it was, it was cool, but I knew like out the gate again, I knew right as the first day of filming was going to start. I was like, okay, dude, you know how to do this. You know what the media can do because I had my experience. So play this accordingly. 
Don't do shit that you might not ever want them to see and keep it in a way that you will always be able to be a stand for. So I knew that game out the gate and it wasn't a tricky game. It just was act accordingly. You went in with open eyes. A hundred percent. Some of the dancers sued Madonna and the film company, and some of—I mean, there was a raft of things. One of the allegations was that there was a misunderstanding about um, the the level of confidentiality and privacy. Did it surprise you when that happened? It surprised me from the dancers. It absolutely did. Um, and um, you know, I was brought into awareness about the lawsuit from their attorneys. Um, I got a call to be part of the deposition um we all knew what game we were inside of when we were doing it you know were you paid properly though that was one of their other claims that they were not paid properly. no we not no was... we weren't paid properly but but we signed off on that contract you know i was led to believe which i've been corrected i was led to believe again from their attorneys that the angle of their lawsuit was that they did not know that when we were filming everything that it was going to be used for public observation. Which seemed ridiculous to you. It, it was ridiculous because it's given away inside of one of the moments at the end of the film when she says, when we're all in the bed, how do we want this to be rated? Yeah. And we all yeah. scream X. For extra fun. That's right. I remember that. And Yeah, it can't be rated if it's going to be for her p- private library. So when there was a settlement... You weren't included in that settlement because you I had nothing to do with the lawsuit at all. And I wanted no part of it because it wasn't right to me, Tim. You know, it was a scenario where sometimes you got to eat shit for what you sign on to. And we knew what we were doing. We knew what contract we signed. What it felt like to me was that all of a sudden, because the movie became as big as it became, and because she was as big as she was, they, they figured out a way to go get some more money from her. And just for who I am, that's just not how I live. And just because you can do something does not mean you should. And I just felt like it was, a, oh, she's got thick bank. Let's get some. And that's just not fair to me. And I still stand for that. Presumably, Madonna saw it exactly the same way you did as a, as a money grab. Can I ask this, Carlton? Why was it that you were selected to join the next tour, the girly show, whereas the others weren't? Or should that be obvious to me? I think we're talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, I think part of me presenting myself from the beginning of when she met me through the end of the last tour and the years of communication, because she and I were, you know, kept in touch some even after the tour. And I think just the ways that I showed who I was allowed her to perceive that I was right to go back out with her. This is about professionalism and maturity. I'm, I'm reading between some lines now. I'm putting some dots together, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Was Madonna for the girly show looking for a greater level of professionalism and maturity? Because I'm putting, not to diminish the good names of the people in the truth or dare or the dance troupe there, but, you know, there was, as you've already pointed out, there was a lot of naivety and, and new times for these guys. This was the first time they'd been exposed to a lot of this stuff. 
it seemed to me that the troupe that she got on board for Girly Show seemed a little bit older for a start. Absolutely. Uh, is it is it correct? Am I right to think that she was looking for just a higher standard of professionalism and work ethic and maturity? I would say so. I mean, you know, for all of us, you know, we live and learn, you know, and what we see on a Monday and learn from that Monday makes you by Friday make a different choice and hopefully a wiser choice. So to answer your question, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Jose and Lewis and, you know, Slam at the time. They were very young and they were very excited and they were very caught up in a lot of their partiness and being late and things like that at the time. And, you know, you can't have that going on. And I think she had a loyalty to them because she knew them from before and they had, you know, had an allegiance to each other at the time. But she also realized you also got to make a choice beyond just that if you want the ship to go well. Was the contract you signed for the girly show different from the type of contract you signed for the Blonde Ambition Tour? I'm looking for what she had learned from that experience. Um, it was s- slightly different in some ways, yeah, of course, but 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 nothing in a in a grandstanding way. I mean, to be really honest, I feel like the things that were in the second contract are what I expect to be in a contract. You know, you show up late, you get you know, a penalty for that. You don't do this. You make sure you do that. You make sure you do this. You know, um, you, you make a stand rightly for the brand. Mm. So it was tighter around that level of professionalism. That's very interesting. I'll tell you something. A a lot of people talk about Blonde Ambition, right, as being that outrageous show. But the girly show really was much more of a taboo of the two, I would have thought. I mean, it starts with, let's go through it, a topless woman. Many of the routines involve dance. Carrie Ann and Abba, yes. Yeah, beautiful Ooh. woman. Oh, goodness, lover. Uh, the dancers are vaguely clothed most of the time. There's an orgy scene, which, by the way, looks extremely realistic. I have to wonder if that was faked or not. How did this one differ for you as part of the cast? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, I have always said, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm extremely grateful for the Blonde Ambition Tour and everything that came from that and Truth or Dare and the legacy that all that's been able to create that said as a performer the girly show was my jam that felt like ah now i'm in my sweet spot it was it it was a much more intelligent a much more elegant show it was a show that was more to the capacity of how i was used to being able to do what i do as a dancer it was theater and burlesque wasn't it all at one on the most grand scale yeah, it was. It was. I mean, the bur- the burlesque stuff, I didn't really, you know, I wasn't cast in those moments so much. Um, but it just felt adult. It felt mm. adult. It felt like a an adult radio station, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, that's what it felt like to perform it. And also because, like, I've just who I am as a man and who I've always been, I've never been so camp Folk, like campy, like that, that kind of integrity that I feel that the Blonde Ambition Tour was really more about has not really been my fit as a human. I can do it. I can pull it off. I can make it happen. Fine. But that's not who I be in life. And so the girly show felt like it matched how I live. 
the men in the girly show were more masculine, which I think was the look that she was going for here. In fact, it was like a gender bending thing going on. It was it was very sure. fascinating, actually. Totally. Like, yeah. And 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 to what you just said, I mean, as a male performer, you know, who cares what my sexual draw is, men or women, and or the mix of it? I've always been drawn to. Okay, 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 okay. So here's a moment, right to the girly show that confirms exactly why the fuck I loved it. We were doing uh, rain, right in the girly show. And we um, got notice from her that we were going to have a surprise person come in. And lo and behold, that's that surprise person was Gene Kelly. He came in to coach and to give some notes on the rain piece for the girly show. Well, well before M, any of that from when I was with Hubbard street, Gene Kelly had always been my dude. If it was between Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire, I was a Gene Kelly dude. Why? Because he was raw and he was masculine and he was a bit edgy. I'm a bit edgier as a, as a dude on the stage in my art form. The always polished and pulled up and lifted and thing that that's gorgeous that Fred Astaire did. It's a one note shop for me. And that's not who I've ever been. So cut to the casting of the girly show. I felt like that's what she cast. She also cast men that could represent that kind of thing. So I felt again like I was back home. Oh, I'm with dudes that dance like dudes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, she was she was really doing an examination and an exploration of gender in that show. So it's fascinating how she came to cast, and I'm sure it was very mindful. You as a performer. Uh powerful and graceful all at the same time can you tell me a bit about the fever routine which is a huge fan favorite <laughs> um i mean really i don't really remember a whole lot about it other than you know pre me getting cast in it when that album came out and i just remember that song and thinking oh my god if i could get on the road with her like i would love to do that number so I was super excited that I actually got cast in it. Um, but what was amazing about the girly show also for me was I got to run the auditions for the girly show. Um, really? Yeah, totally. She called me. She was planning to go back out. She was going to be in LA. Did I know of any dancers that she should take a look at? I was like, I'd give that a thought. And then we hung up. She called back in 10 minutes. She was like, oh my God, I didn't even think to ask you. Are you interested in going back out? I said, yes. And, she's, and she said, well, how would you feel about if you're going to go out running the auditions with me in LA? And then you can bring all your people and make sure I know who they are. And so Chris Childers, who I got to do the Beast Within with, that six and a half minute number with us exclusively owning the stage, Chris and I had done so many gigs together. We you know, were traveling for Body Glove, modeling overseas and Bangkok for four years in a row and did a bunch of other things together. So he was one of the first people on my list that I knew I wanted her to meet. So I was thrilled that he was there, that she got his juice, that he got cast, and then she created a number for he and I to do together. It was like the crescendo of my time with him. 
Fever was just fever was fever. I mean, I don't really re- remember a whole lot about it other than, ooh, I get to play the sexy dude in a menage with M on stage. Like that's what I remember about that. And that was Michael Gregory, Asian dancer. Were you comfortable in that outfit or that lit or lack? Oh, sure. I mean, I'm a nudist, dude. I mean, I can be fucking naked anywhere. I don't care. Sometimes amateurs know best, and a lack of professionalism is all you'll hear on the Time to Talk show. Join Tim and his panel of guests as they wade their way through a range of news, music, and pop culture treats. Time to Talk, the show hosted by amateurs for unprofessional listeners. Madonna's had some world-class dance troops surrounding her. She and she's usually the one that discovers, you know, those next great dances. Apart from your own tours, Girly Show and Blonde Ambition, which Madonna tour dance troupe has really impressed you? Tim, to be really honest, I have yeah, not on. I have not really watched a lot of them. I'm shocked. With detail to really know. I was worried you might say this. So you never you've never examined the Confessions tour. No, I've never seen the whole Confessions tour. I've never seen a whole other tour that she's done. I've seen pieces from all the other ones. Now, why is this? This is fascinating to me. You'll watch your own ones over and over on the VHS tape, but you won't watch the other ones. What's Who that? said I watch my own ones over and over? <laughs> I, I never said I'm that. I'm putting words in your mouth. Okay, I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Naughty Tim, thanks for calling me out on that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, dude, I, um, by nature, who I am and how I carve my art and my focus on art, I'm on to the next. I'm on to the next, you know. There are elements from her other tours, to answer your question, that I absolutely really like. But I think the, 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 the tour that stood out to me, and this is how bad it is, I don't even know the names of them. What's the tour that she did with all the Asian influence? Drowned. Drowned, okay. I really liked the pieces of Drowned that I saw. I liked those. I liked there. There was one particular Asian dancer. I can't tell you who he was that. I liked some of the stuff that I saw him do. I liked a lot of the, just the production value of that show, what it looked like. I loved that. She had the martial arts component to it. That thing I really liked. Carlton, do you mind? Would you mind telling me about how you learned that you were HIV positive? Hmm. Sure. Um, I was with Hubbard Street Dance Company. Um, I learned about it in January of 1985. Um, And I came back from tour. I was not feeling well. No big deal. I went to the doctor thought it was like a fever and that kind of thing or like a bad flu or something like that and uh well, no, I, I called the doctor he answered the phone the first thing he said was are you sitting down and i was like anybody that hears that kind of sentence knows it doesn't sound too great and so he told me in that phone call when i was in hawaii and i just remember him asking me if I was sitting down 
him telling me that I, you know, tested positive to HIV, and I do not know what the fuck he said after that. I don't. Wow. I still don't. But like my whole system went blank. How old were you? Uh, 1985, I was 21. Way too young to be considering mortality. Interesting, right? Mm. Yeah. I was dating two females at the time. Um, again, I was at the height of my fluidity sexually around those years. So I had acted out with some guys in San Francisco I pretty much at this point think I know who I contracted it by. Um, but at the same time, I had two girlfriends. Um, and so I had to tell them what was going on. And uh, I just remember leaving my hotel after I got that phone call, getting to the theater, sitting in the house. The tech rehearsal is starting and I'm sitting by myself. And I'm looking at the dancers on the stage, and I was like, this is fucking insane. And there's no way this thing can take me down. Because I was not a person that got diagnosed that, you know, told a lot of folks or shared it with the family or embraced it. Nah. No, I had a whole lot of shame. That was my kryptonite. Secrecy is a theme for you and not one that you've chosen to, but you felt a need to keep some things very private, very secret. I'm curious to know, did your dance troupe know, like Gabrielle was HIV positive, I believe, too? Nobody knew that, dude. Hubbard Street didn't know that. The Madonna stuff didn't know that. No, no. The only time that it came in question we were during the girly show and um, something happened when we were in Japan and I had slightly injured myself and I went to the doctor in Japan and that doctor took some blood work. They did not tell me that they were going to run an HIV test. Now I already knew what my deal was. So I was petrified that they were going to do it anyway, but they did it. So while I was in Japan on the girly show, I got a call from the doctor saying that they were going to have to tell the Madonna people the results that they got. And I went off and I said, don't you fucking dare. I will have this whole shop blown up. If I find out, that any of this information, because I did not give you authority to run that test. I came to you for a spasm in my back, not for you to run my fucking blood work. And if you tell them, you're going to have a big problem. So to this date, I do not know. I never got confronted about it. I don't know if they ever did. If they ever did, she and her team never addressed it with me. You were a warrior in so many ways, because even that story that you've just told, there were laws designed specifically so that people couldn't be discriminated against in terms of employment and in other areas of life. You stood up for your rights with that conversation. Like you say, you don't know what the outcome was. Sure. You stood up for your rights. Instinctively, you stood up for your rights. I'm a street nigger from Chicago, dude. (laughs) That's what you know how to do. Come on now. 
forget which tour, it doesn't matter. At a, in a period of your life, you had two different things going on for you. You're, you are sitting on information that you're HIV positive. What a personal thing that you can't share or felt you couldn't share. And sexuality as well. You talked mm-hmm. about that it was really difficult for you and you had your own personal struggles with the concept of coming out in inverted commas. There was a lot going on for you that you weren't able to share. It must have been a lonely space. It was. It definitely was. Um, and it was very challenging times, you know. Um, I All that I know, Tim, is that I, and I say it lightly sometimes, but it is true, man. I relied on how I was groomed on the streets. And, you know, I grew up fighting, literally. Sometimes I was pushed into fighting. Sometimes I caused the physical fights. So I knew myself to be somebody that could, you know, make myself strong on the streets. So when it came to these personal areas, I literally just remember thinking, remember what you're made of, Carlton. You're the dude that fought on the street and won. You got to bring that same kind of force to hold you through all this other stuff that's going on. That stuff didn't happen for nothing. It didn't happen just so you could beat up somebody in your school or you could prove that you couldn't be intimidated on the street. Use it now for something of, of substance. And that is what I had. That is literally the main brick I got to hold on to and coming through a dad that was an alcoholic and was beating up my mom and the scare and the fear and the freak out. And I had to keep it moving. Remember what you're made of, dude. That's been my mantra the whole time. And it still is today. Remember what you're made of. You just speak like it seems to me like you, you've come to a point in your life and it seems like you're only just entering it too. Where oh, yeah, you're, dude. You're accepting all of this. You can talk about it openly. And yes. there, is, there isn't shame. Not what you thought the whole time you thought shame would be the result. Of Let me tell you something. Hang on a second. Yeah. So I remember being eight or nine years old, Tim. And I don't know why this was on my soul, but it was. And this is how God works. I'm a God guy, no matter what else I get into. And I remember back then thinking, I had this sense, I don't know why, but I did. I had this sense that when I grew up, I was supposed to speak to thousands and thousands of people about like getting in their power or being power. Like literally, I remember those words. When I look at what my journey has been and all the things that I've been called to go through, and survive and thrive through, I get that it was on purpose for me to be diagnosed, for me to be petrified, for me to be a conqueror in spite of, for me to have my sexuality all tangled up, all of it, dude, so that I could be a voice that serves helping other people not go through at least not to the degree that I did, what they're experiencing. But all that started also from my autobiography. You know, I wrote my first book, Front and Center, How I Learned to Live There, 
that book dropped in 2007. That's really what started it. Let me ask you about that time, actually, because sure. where, where, the, where the book was born is, is quite a, an amazing story. Because after all of those years of success, being at your own, I'm talking physical peak, you're recognized, you're doing what you love, you're sharing that brilliant physicality that you have with people who appreciate it, thousands of people around the world, you're touring, you're basking in celebrity. Then in 2000, or around about the year 2000, tell us about having all of your worldly possessions in a shopping cart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, I actually it started it started to trickle away. Things started to trickle away around 96, 97, right? And what I mean by that is I had my first TV series as a series regular in 1996 called Fame. Oh, sorry, called LA Firefighters. It was a show on Fox. It seemed like it was going to be a big deal. I was, you know, it was great for me because I could be this fake ass straight dude. And I, you know, I was playing a fireman and I was the tiller of the truck. And so all things masculine, I was like, yay, I finally get to present myself like that. And it looked like the show was going to go well. And then after our first season, it didn't do well. And then our show got canceled. So my show got canceled. My mom died. My dog got killed in front of me. And my partner that I had set up house with in the Hollywood Hills and thought it was all going to be great left me all within six months. Jesus. I had flown to Chicago to bury my mom. My partner picked me up at the airport. We are literally driving through Hollywood from the airport to the house that we were renting in the Hollywood Hills. And on that drive, my partner said he wanted to break up with me. And I remember looking out the window and I just remember seeing this guy on a bicycle. And I just was, I thought, Carlton, just keep your eye on him. Don't connect to your feelings. Just watch the guy. And I just remember in that moment thinking, God, you've got to come in right now. All of that tragedy in a short space of time to you literally looking at your belongings and saying, to survive, I might need to sell this, that, and most of what I own. Yes. How does that happen? So I have to be careful in this answer. Here's why. Because there's the human side of me, Tim, but then there's the version of me that is woken up about the whole thing. So how does that happen from the lay person, the folks on the street version? I perceive that I made a lot of choices pre that happened that was a lot of shit that was out of integrity. And so I had to pay for that. And God don't like ugly. Either through lying or manipulating or cheating or the mixed bag or drug use, all of it. And so it became to flatline. I caused what happened. That's that version of it. There's the other version. There's the other version that is the awakening that I have today, which is what if nothing was broken? What if nothing was broken? Meaning even the problems that are the shopping cart with my shit in it and the HIV and the dad was an overdrinker and this and that, what if all of it was designed to be on purpose? 
for my ultimate becoming. If I did not have the shopping cart experience, if I did not have the HIV experience, I would not know how to set other souls free from the mashugana that they experience had I not gone through something. I'm very clear about that. So as challenging as it was at the time, and life can be challenging sometimes even now for different reasons, what I know on the other side of it is, if it be my order, what I saw when I was eight or nine years old, that I was supposed to talk to people about being in their power, that was on me at eight years old, dude. So that's what I see about how does that happen? Because certain things are ordered to be. From childhood, everything you've told me today, intense. And, and to go from where you did in childhood, someone in that situation would be quite prone, and I don't know if this is your experience, to addictions, drugs, alcohol. Was that part of your experience? All of it. Yeah. All of it. I mean, I've already said I went to SAA. I, I've dabbled in not, you know, dabbled in drugs. You know, marijuana was always my main thing. You know, did I do cocaine? Yes. Have I done crystal meth? Yes. Have I had alcohol? Yes. I've done. I'm a Gemini. I'm a double Gemini. So that just means like I'm fucking overly inquisitive about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> and so most things for me that are new are very shiny and very enticing for me. And so I have to watch that part of me, you know, so, you know, when it looks like there's going to be an opportunity for a new experience. Ooh. Sometimes amateurs know best and a lack of professionalism is all you'll hear on the time to talk show. Join Tim and his panel of guests as they wade their way through a range of news, music, and pop culture treats. Time to talk. The show hosted by amateurs for unprofessional listeners. Amateurs, is this the best that they could do? Slight change of pace, Carl. Sure. You've, you've mentioned Strike a Pose. Mm -hmm. And as, as you mentioned, that's the uh, documentary where the original dancers from Blonde Ambition returned and they did a follow-up basically to Truth or Dare and talked about what their experiences were like. Um, the documentary was painted as a very reflective reunion. I absolutely loved watching it. It was it was mm. raw in parts and it was it was actually quite beautiful and the way it was filmed, everything about it was great. But I understand that behind the scenes, there was still some plenty of old school drama between um, the dance troupe. Is that true? What does that mean? Well, Kevin Stay, uh, who I've spoken to, one of the other dancers on the tour, okay. he said that back in the day, he felt very overwhelmed and overpowered by that dance group at the time. Okay. Uh, and that he was determined that as someone who, like you, has gone through experiences, he wasn't going to feel like that anymore. He described when uh, we're making uh, Strike a Pose that you all fell into your old roles pretty quickly, like a family does. Like yeah. you can never hide who you are from your family because they know mm -hmm. where you've come from kind of thing. Was that your experience as well? Um, I would say... Not as much as I imagine Kevin felt that because I saw the evolution of some of the guys without a doubt that was nowhere close to who they were when we were on the road. Oliver Crooms is a different dude. 
Luis Camacho is a very different dude. Those two alone, which contributed to some of the curiosities back in the day, they didn't come with those colors at all. Were there a couple of others that had some interesting dynamics going on that were specific to Kevin? I I observed some, um, but nothing that played out that impacted me the same way I was impacted with the guys from before. My experience with the guys from Truth or Dare, Blonde Ambition, was a very different experience directly once we did Strike a Pose. Interestingly too, Carlton, you actually sing as well. I've, I've seen a few clips on YouTube yeah. of having a warble and, and whilst acting, I assume they're musicals. Um, they've been a combination. I've done some scoring for films. I have done a couple of musicals to my surprise, cause I was never a musical kind of good dude. Like I was like, that all seemed a little bit too cheesy for me, but then the right ones showed up and then I did an album, uh, back in 2008. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I, again, I'm a Gemini man, you know, and I, I, I was, um, I've always been a mixed bag and I've been gifted to have a multitude of skills that I've had a chance to play with over my journey. So life is a chocolate box and you, you seen it. I get it. Yeah. You went totally. to school. Interesting side note too. You went to school with Michelle Obama. <laughs> What's yes, that? I did. I How did. We, well, you know, that, that was part of my journey of getting out of Florida and Diane Brooks and Carolyn Curry taking a stand for me getting into the school. Poof, it happened to be Whitney Young Magnet High School into the dance department. Three months into the school year was the only way they could get me into a school that wasn't in the hood, right? Because my parents didn't want me to go there. They didn't feel it was safe. So I ended up there. And yeah, she was, we were, we're, we're the exact same age. We're in the exact same class. It's very funny because when Barack Obama was running for, for presidency, and their name was becoming very public. At the time, I chased onto the internet, and there was an image. It's fucking buried. I can't find it now. But there was an image of Michelle Obama in leotards and tights standing in the dance studio room at Whitney Young Magnet High School. I remember seeing it. As you look on to some of these greats that are still iconic in the public sphere like Janet and Madonna what's it like as a former colleague and and probably a fan of them both to watch these icons enter the sunset of their careers what is that like for you it's 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 cool you know um it's very easy tim as you know better than anybody to find the angle to chastise them and to ride them and why aren't they and why didn't they and shouldn't they i leave all that shit alone they're a human they're inside of a journey the fact that they still for those that are still doing it as you bring up kudos to them should it look like something specific says who they're on their own journey they have a right to ride that journey out as best they can. It's a very tricky thing. I only, I only know from my degree of getting merged into all of that, figuring out who you are away from that is no joke. So it makes sense that some of them, M in particular, 
Janet in particular, are still pushing that to the degrees that they do, M in particular. But she's an artist. They're an artist first. So why should they, why should it look like something? The artist's work is to challenge the status quo. The artist's work is to get us thinking broader, bigger, further. And, you know, M in particular, what I know about her is that she's an artist first at the core. She's an, she's an underground artist that happens to have had a critical team that knew how to leverage the skills that she had. And so because her team was in, you know, adept to the degree that they were, they helped her make a lot of money. So she's been able to have a lot of money to create her art forms in the various ways that she does. I love what you say about the, the, the fans and possibly the media, the public need to get out of the way of artists like Madonna. And I have to say, if you look back through history, some of the greatest artists have had their uh, best period in the final uh, quarter of their life, if you want to call it that. So the best could be yet to come. Does that mean it will be as commercially successful? Does that mean it will sell as many copies? Does it mean we, it's what we've seen before? Absolutely not. In fact, that's the entire point. It's going to be uh, something entirely different, I'd imagine, and that's where Madonna's heading. Absolutely, dude. And, and I say this all the time, and people that are not connected to the industry don't understand this so well. You know, when you are living a life that um, where you where your art form helps you challenge your life, meaning there's so many artists that I know that have taken on projects, a film project, a theater project, an album, whatever, knowing that the project was beyond them, but they also knew more than doing it perfectly, they knew that they had to face that fear. Or they knew that they had to conquer that issue. The perfection game is somebody else's story and somebody else's agenda. For the high artist, which all of them are, they're about the nuances of what is inside of that work, not the final product being perfect for everybody to approve. That's not their game. You know, today, Carlton, you've told us a lot about your life. You've been incredibly generous. But I'm curious, you've said today that there was a period where you felt disconnected from your soul. What does it mean now that presumably you are reconnecting and rediscovering your soul? <laughs> what does it mean for you day to day? What is your life like now? I'll tell you what my life is like right now, again, because 2020 really brought a lot of that stuff to balance, right? I've only known myself. You know, I've done cleanses and detoxes and things like this throughout my lifestyle. The longest I've ever gone as an adult to having a clear head has been four and a half months, meaning where I didn't have a drink or a smoke or some weed or a something or a something or a something. So I've made a giving it up for God commitment for one year because I realized, dude, give yourself a chance to see what life really is. Without any weight on you, with just a clear perspective, who are you? How do you perceive you? How do you perceive the world? Blah, 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 blah. So it's wonderful for me to answer your question, to give myself and be inside of 
the first time I'm 56 years old, man, that I get to really say I get to live free in my soul. In this wonderful new philosophy and, and outlook on life, how influential has the Kabbalah been on helping you to view the world differently? Oh, well, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I'm grateful that I got a chance to study in that. And I do have to say, Madonna sponsored me for the first year and a half of me doing that as a secret. A lot of people don't know that, but she did. And so the bottom line of Kabbalah, which is take responsibility, that's the, that's the, that's the nuts and bolts of that technology. It sits with me as I navigate my life now to take responsibility for what was, what is, and what can become. I think the fans will find it quite a treat to know that Madonna has not forsaken you because some people try to label her with that reputation that she uses people and moves on. But I understand back in that time that you described earlier when you were at rock bottom, did she also open her home to you for a period of time too or lend you one of her homes? Absolutely. The house here that she had in the Hollywood Hills. Um, And um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. So while... You know, again, as you say, people have their perspectives on her. I know this woman's truth. There's a lot of what my life is and has become that would not be if it were not for her. And that's the truth. And or at least the way God wanted it to be through her. So I'm grateful and I will always be a stand for her. I will I will always be a stand for her. At this amazing stage of your life, Carlton, are you loved by others? I'm massively loved by a lot of people, and I'm really grateful to be balanced enough in my soul to be present to that fact. Absolutely. Most importantly, do you love yourself? Absolutely, I love myself, and I'm so grateful to be in this stage to get my value. I've been having just the most phenomenal conversations with my sister Candy. She's 10 years my senior. And we've been sharing, you know, I share when COVID was starting to happen that, you know, I wanted to be able to connect more with my family because I realized, and maybe this is your truth and a lot of people's truth. I had more personal conversations with friends of mine than I was having with my family members. And I realized that that was insane. So I brought that conversation to my family. I was like, we need to change this. So my sister and I have been talking a lot about life and things. And I'm so blessed dude that my journey has been what it is and i can see the grace that people give me i can see the grace that i give myself and to your point that i get to love on who the fuck i am right now full steam and now be about the business of walking that out and being a stand for it because it's not enough that we get to say that we love ourselves a lot of folks can say that A lot of folks can position themselves with that. It's another thing to make day-to-day, moment-to-moment choices, which means boundaries, which means celebrations that represent that you love yourself. And I am, and I am. Do you know what, Carlton Wilborn, it has been an amazing honour to intersect with you at this stage. (laughs) Really, it's all coming together for you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for spending some time in the fortress. I do, I do. Thank you, Tim. Thank you.